What do you say to people who suffer unjustly, who for seemingly no reason at all are being ostracized and put to death, or that the only reason for their suffering is their confession of faith? We have a word for that. It's genocide. Genocide has been happening all throughout human history. It only recently, in the grand scheme of things, became an internationally recognized crime. 1946, to be exact. According to one U.S. government agency, since that time, they've estimated over 40 genocides taking place, with over 50 million deaths and an additional 50 million people displaced. To be sure, genocide is still happening around the world today for a number of different reasons. Whether it's in Africa, in the Middle East, or in China, what's happening, these are a few places where it is currently happening today. Human beings are being put to death for certain religious beliefs. As of the writing of uh, 1 Peter, Christians were experiencing a bit of the same. They had pledged their allegiance to a crucified king, a convicted criminal, in the eyes of the world. And because of their allegiance to this person, they refused to participate in the various cultural activities that were deemed normative and yet viewed by Christians to be idolatrous. It was one thing to honor Caesar, which Christians were called to do, but it was another thing to worship Caesar. Christians were suffering at the hands of the Romans, and if they weren't citizens, they had no recognized rights. One commentary mentioned that they could be arrested and imprisoned, held without bail for any length of time, physically abused by their captors, subjected to seizure of property, exiled, sent to work as slaves in government mines, and even killed for no other reason than being Christians. If you read the book of Acts, you can see that this happened to Paul, and Paul was thrown in prison and beaten, and the next day he says, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, and you see the people trying to cover their tracks and say, oh no, we've done a horrible thing, we've mistreated a citizen. But Christians didn't necessarily always have that Roman citizenship. All of this suffering could have simply been avoided if they were willing to do one thing, renounce Christ. Simple. Just renounce Christ. He's a crucified, convicted criminal. He can do nothing for you. Just renounce him and all of this suffering will end. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to be separated from your family? Is it worth it to lose your job over? Is it worth it to be treated as a criminal and despised by your neighbors? These are different, difficult questions to wrestle with, far more difficult than the questions that Christians in the U.S. are more accustomed to asking ourselves. Like, should I go to church today? Or should I talk about Jesus with my family? We like to be comfortable. We appreciate the basic human rights that our government recognizes are given to us by a creator. It's hard for us to comprehend anything else. We haven't grown up with anything else or knowing anything else. There may be a time, though, where confessing Christ will cause us to forfeit our basic human rights. And if and when that time comes, what will we do? What is more important to you, basic human rights or Christ? As people are wrestling with this very question at the time of Peter is writing this book, listen to Peter's encouragement in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word if you are able to. 
First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Reading again in Jesus' name. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into, the he- into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Father God, these are your words, and your word is true. Your word is true when it was first given. Lord, it's true today as we read your word in our own language. We pray that you would sanctify us in this truth. Father, encourage us with these words today. Strengthen us in our faith as well. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Throughout the book of 1 Peter, Peter has been emphasizing and promoting the work of the triune God for salvation. In chapter 1, the first two verses, God, right, or Peter writes that God has chosen the people for salvation. That the Spirit sanctifies or sets apart and makes holy. And that Jesus shed his blood for us. And God's great mercy is, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Chapter 1, verse 3. A hope that is being reserved and guarded for us, protected by the power of God. We have been redeemed and bought back with the blood of Jesus, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, and born again through the word of God, in verse 23 of the first chapter. In chapter 2, Peter encourages his readers to continue to come to Christ, that chief cornerstone which has been rejected by men, and to submit to the authorities that are over them, and to patiently endure the suffering that comes. Something that we're all pretty good at doing, right? Patiently enduring suffering that comes. But Peter points them to the example of Christ on the cross, who bore our sins and didn't demand revenge for his ill treatment. He didn't say in his dying breath, just you wait and see what's going to happen to you, you pagans. Christ didn't say that. Instead, what does Christ say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Chapter 3 has more practical advice for family relationships until verse 13, where Peter encourages his readers again to suffer for doing what is right and to be ready for suffering by having an answer prepared for the hope that is in them. Which brings us the question today, what's your reason for putting up with suffering in this life? When suffering comes to you, what is it that you cling to that gets you through this suffering that allows you to patiently endure? And does that reason really give you hope? Or does that reason just give you enough motivation to get by? And then we get to the text for today. As Peter gives his audience here a reason for the hope that they have inside themselves, a reason, something to cling to in the midst of suffering to help them patiently endure a truth that will never change, though questioned by many. He says this, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, 
so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. We'll stop there for now. Let's go back to that question that we were asking earlier that inevitably comes when faced with suffering. Is it worth it? Is the reason for what I'm suffering for really worth it? Or should I just say, you know what, I don't believe in Christ anymore. He's not worth this momentary affliction. What is Peter saying here? Simply put, Christ died. If we are to follow in his footsteps, there's a call here to be willing to die. In other biblical language, the wording is used to pick up our cross and to follow him. That's not saying just grab a big heavy tree and carry it around with you for a while or wear a cross necklace with you wherever you go, but to put to death the deeds of the flesh and our sinful nature leading us on the path of death, leading us to die to ourselves each and every day. Christ died. He died for a purpose. He said he died for sins once for all. It's true that this Messiah that these Christians were worshiping was indeed a crucified criminal who was put to death, but not for sins that he himself had committed, but for the sins of the entire world. For the sins of his accusers, for the sins of the ones who drove the nails in his hands and feet, for the sins of those who would put to death other Christians, for the sins of the worst criminals that you and I can imagine that this world would ever see. And then, yes, too, for the sins of you and me. Yes, Christ died, but his death wasn't a meaningless death. It was a death that would bring freedom and release from sin. And though external comforts can certainly help comfort people who are afflicted, there's no amount of external comfort that is able to take away the internal affliction. People continue to look outside to outside agents to deal with their inner demons, their inner afflictions, whether they're chemicals to numb the pain or, or dull the pain, whether it's material goods or successes to say, I'm safe because I have these things that promise purpose and happiness. None of these things are able to deal with inner affliction, only distract us from, the, from our basic problem. And when we begin to think of the depth of our sin, and then we scratch a little bit further beneath the surface and see how big a problem our sin truly is, then suddenly our external comforts don't seem to be as big a deal anymore. You can be free and still be a slave, can't you? And likewise, you can also be a slave and still be free. Our freedom doesn't depend on our external circumstances. The single most important question becomes for us, how can I deal with my sin? The answer might at first be disheartening, because the answer is you can't deal with it. There's nothing that you can do to get rid of it. You can't hide it. You can't change it. You can't rename it to make it seem like a lesser offense than it truly is. It's a damning reality. Every one of us is a sinner. We can't escape that fact. Even if we were to stop suddenly sinning right now, we would still be condemned sinners. And unless there's a way for your sin to be dealt with, and the consequence for that sin is eternity in hell. So what good is temporary earthly comfort in exchange for eternal torment? There is one who has dealt with your sins, though. Christ, who died once and for all, who died for sin, 
the just for the unjust. Christ took your sin. He took your punishment. As John writes in 1 John 2, Jesus Christ is the righteous one. And he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not just for ours, but also for the whole world. Christ has dealt with our sin. And for what purpose? Peter continues, so that he might bring us to God. Christ is the content of our confession, the content, the object of our faith. He is the only one who could do this, and he has done this. For the believers at the time Peter is writing this letter, they were asking the question, is Christ worth it? Is my confession worth losing everything for? And Peter reminds them here in this letter that Christ is everything. He is the one who has died for you. He is the one who brings you to God. Without Christ, you have no bright future. You have no salvation. You have no life. You have no freedom. You have no forgiveness of sin. So the question, is Christ worth it? The answer is absolutely yes. But another question must be asked here. How can Jesus do that if he is crucified? If he is dead, if he is that convicted criminal that everyone knew him to be, what good is a dead Savior? And it is true that Christ was put to death in the flesh, but that's also not the complete story. He was made alive in the Spirit. Jesus was put to death. He was executed as a sacrifice for sins. And his being made alive again is the proof that his sacrifice was valid. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. In other words, to these readers of Peter's letter here, if Christ is just the one who has been put to death for sins, and Christ is just the crucified, convicted criminal that you know him to be, that everyone says him to be, then he's not worth following. Then he's not worth holding fast to your conviction. Confession in the midst of persecution. Then don't hold on to him any longer. Your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Applying this to Peter's audience, if Jesus was merely crucified and buried, then the answer to the question, is it worth it, is a resounding no. There's no point in putting up with persecution if this faith is baseless and worthless. However, Christ has risen from the dead. And he appeared to numerous eyewitnesses. It was a verifiable fact at the time that Peter is writing this. Peter continues his encouragement to believers. And he says, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when that the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And this is where we get the idea in the Apostles' Creed that we confess that Christ descended into hell. He went to hell here to proclaim victory to these spirits who are in prison. To proclaim victory, not to suffer, but to proclaim victory to the souls that were disobedient during the days of Noah. Here giving a picture of the type of souls here that suffer in hell. What do we know about those disobedient souls during the days of Noah? From Genesis chapter 6, we read this, Every intent of the thoughts of his heart, the thoughts of man, were only evil continually. Every intent and thought of the heart of man at the time of Noah was only evil continually. 
They were a persistently disobedient bunch. Since the first time that Noah gathers the lumber and starts to build this giant boat for he and his family, it took quite a long time to build it, 120 years. Throughout that time, these people continued to mock Noah. They continued to be disobedient, continued to persist in their disobedience and their rejection of God. For 120 years, they continued in their disobedience. And now these people see with their own eyes what they had missed out on. As a crucified and risen Savior comes down into hell, they fail to see their Savior in their lifetime, and now they see him only to bend their knee and acknowledge Christ as Lord and to suffer the rest of eternity knowing how wrong they were on this crucial peace, this crucial confession. Peter writes this to encourage believers that Christ is the crucified and risen Lord, that he has proclaimed victory to the spirits in prison and hell, that he is the victorious, that he is victorious over sin, death, the devil, and yes, even hell itself. And he is able to meet you where you are at today to strengthen and encourage you with whatever suffering you might be facing. And Peter then proceeds to take a Holy Spirit-inspired sidetrack, it seems, Speaking of Noah and his family being saved through the water, he says, you too have also been saved through water. Not a washing of dirt from your skin, but a washing that gives you a clean conscience. A washing that cleans your conscience, it cleans your sin from you. In other words, a washing that deals with your sin. And this washing is baptism. Now this verse can be the Lutheran's trump card in any discussions that come about over baptism. But we do ourselves a disservice when we don't finish the verse. Yes, it's true that God saves through baptism, but it's not a separate way of salvation apart from Christ. No, it is baptism that connects us to Christ. As Paul also writes in Romans 6, we are baptized into Christ. And in Galatians, we are clothed with Christ in baptism. Luther touches on that in his small catechism. He says, It's not the water, indeed, that does such great things, but the word of God connected with the water, and our faith which relies on that word of God. For without the word of God, it's simply water and no baptism. In other words, what he's saying here, it's just a removal of dirt from the flesh, and it profits you nothing. But when it's connected with the word of God, then it is a baptism. That is a gracious water of life and a washing of regeneration in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says to Titus in the third chapter. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It connects us to Christ, and salvation comes here through Christ. Is Christ worth it? And Jesus, or Peter, is saying here, yes, he is. Salvation only comes through Christ and through Christ alone, Christ being our crucified and risen Savior. For the Christians facing persecution, they need only to look back at their baptism and to remember what wonderful promise was given to them there. That it was there in that moment of time in history that they received the Holy Spirit through the word and promise of God. That they were buried with Christ in his death. They were raised to new life just as Christ was raised to new life. Their sin was dealt with once and for all. 
Is relief from temporary persecution really worth abandoning this certain hope? In the final verse of the chapter, Peter reminds his readers that Christ is not only the crucified Lord, but he's also the risen Lord who has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling and reigning as angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This man to whom believers are pledging their allegiance to and willing to endure suffering for is no mere mortal like any earthly ruler. He is instead the ascended Christ, the risen Lord, Lord of lords and King of kings, the Prince of peace. He is the one to whom we all must give an account for our lives. And it kind of puts things into perspective, doesn't it? What becomes the most important thing for us? Our basic human rights or Christ, our Savior and Lord, who is above all things and who has all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth? over every created thing. Is he worth it? Throughout the book, Peter makes the point that Christ is resoundingly worth it. Christ is our confidence. When the world around us changes, Christ is our confidence. The things that Peter has written here about Christ will never change. When the circumstances we find ourselves in turn out to be more than we bargained for, Christ is our confidence. When following Christ leads us to carry our cross and results in the death of ourselves, Christ is our confidence. Whatever it is that you may be facing, remember this. And this is the point that Peter gets to here. Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This is who Christ is. This is the one who, for whom we suffer willingly and we patiently endure suffering because Christ is worth it. Is Christ worth it? If you're not sure, I'd encourage you to go back to God's word and remind yourself of who Christ is. This is what Peter is doing, reminding us that Christ of who Christ is, and assuring us that Christ is most definitely worth it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and for its truth. Lord, as we look at the world around us, we have questions, we have concerns. Lord, as we look at the world around us and the suffering that goes on, we don't understand it. And Father, everything inside of us seems to say, let's just recognize basic human rights. Lord, we do recognize that all human rights are given to us by our Creator. They're given to us not because of what we can contribute to society, but because of the, we, the fact that we are precious, eternal human souls created by you and you alone. Lord, help us to value human life. But Lord, even more importantly than valuing human life, help us to value you as our Savior and to hold fast to this confession of faith. To when the time comes, Lord, when we are asked to renounce our human rights or to renounce you, that we would resoundingly stand on you and you alone. Thank you, God, that you are the one who has given to us salvation, that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. No persecution, no suffering, no earthly consequences. Lord, no creation, no powers below or above that can separate us from your love. 
Thank you, God, that you are the one who saves us. Help us to rest in you and what you have done today and every day. And Lord, we do pray for those who are suffering today that you would draw near to them in their time of suffering. Help them to see an eternal perspective, Lord, of what you have done. You have dealt with their sins. You have dealt with the sins of their persecutors and their oppressors. And Lord, that you call us to eternal life. You are preparing for us a place of glory, a place, Lord, that you, come back, you are coming back to bring us to. Help us, Father, to submit to you in all things and to put our faith and our trust in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.